0: One of my favorite passages uh, that I was able to study out was from John chapter 11, the well-known account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, when he proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. And this morning I'd like to spend some time uh, working through this familiar passage, hopefully making some simple observations and and hopefully drawing out some encouraging uh, reflections. My hope and prayer is that by considering Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life Uh, We might better appreciate how Jesus, first off, is our eternal hope, that he's our resurrection, but then also kind of this other angle, that he is our earthly hope, that he is our life, the resurrection and the life. Let's open in prayer and then look at uh, John chapter 11. Lord God, we are grateful uh, for the blessing and the privilege that it is to gather freely to open your scriptures We ask for clear eyes to see, for your Spirit's work in our hearts uh, to conform us and make us more like Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 11. We're going to be starting really in verse 14. But before we uh, pick up there, notice that that this passage is uh, right in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. A few days prior, (laughs) 11 verse 3. Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus, he whom you love is ill. Lazarus is sick. Their brother is ill. He's, uh, as we see, fatally ill. Rather than immediately leave to heal Lazarus, what does Jesus do? Notice, remember, Jesus could simply say the word. Remember John chapter 4, verse 50. He could just say, go and your son will live. He could just speak the word, but he doesn't do that. He decides to stay put in his current location, uh, verse 6, 11 verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Notice it's not that Jesus got too busy, the time just got away from him. No, it's, it's an intentional, it's a purposeful delay here. Now notice both the boldness and the unexpected clarity of Jesus' words, in 14 and 15. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Lazarus is dead, yet it's, it's clear, and we'll see. The disciples don't exactly understand what's going on quite yet. Verse 16, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Kind of an interesting remark there. Thomas often condemned as doubting Thomas. The one who in chapter 20 says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This same Thomas, doubting Thomas. He actually exhibits pretty strong faith, pretty solid uh, courage right here, boldness. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, if I had to speculate, I would venture to say that most of you in this room are probably like me and like to have things in life fairly figured out. We like to have the details nailed down. Perhaps some of you might say, I have my semester plan. I have my four-year graduation plan. I have my five-year plan. I have my 10-year plan. I know what I want to do with my life. Well, if you're anything like me, as I look at a passage like this, I I think we can find great comfort and encouragement here in Thomas' example Rash though it may be. There are times and seasons in life and perhaps you're in one right now where things aren't exactly what you had expected. things don't exactly make sense, yet you're still called to press forward, to move in the right direction. It, it's hard not to relate to Thomas right here. A loved one is suffering is now dead, and Jesus easily could have fixed it. He could have said the word. He could have went a little bit quicker. And now we see Jesus is going to lead his disciples into Jerusalem while the chief priests are actively trying to arrest him, trying to kill him, as we'll see toward the end of chapter 11. At this point, none of it exactly makes sense, at least not to Thomas. And so I can picture him saying, thinking, Lord, I I don't understand it. I don't like it. Frankly, I don't want it. Yet how does he respond? Let us also go that we may die with him. Strong resolve right there. Come what may. The statement of surrender. Um, is, this how, is this how we would respond? I think that Thomas here has learned a lesson that I know I often need to be reminded of. That the best place to be is in the center of God's will, even when it's a twisting wilderness, a wandering path. This verse right here is, is a pointed reminder of the call to daily take up our cross to follow Jesus wherever and however he may lead. A reminder, I think, that we all need. Let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. By the time Jesus arrives, it's, he's not just 20 minutes late, he's, he's days late. And I want you to notice the tremendous risk that Jesus is also taking here. It's says two miles from Jerusalem. People are out to get him. Think of 10 verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is just a brief period of time prior. 10 verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him. 11 verse 8. A rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you. If Martha and Mary are anything like me. I'd be wondering why Jesus even came. You're too late. They're out to get you. Perhaps it's just best to go. Why'd you even come? Clearly, that's not what happens. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went up and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha greets Jesus just like we would read in Luke chapter 10, where Martha greets and serves, Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Notice Martha's grief here, although it's certainly not a grief with no hope. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. As far as Martha's concerned, there's no expectation at all of any sort of a present resurrection. As we'll see in 1139, a few verses later, she doesn't even want Jesus to have the tomb opened because of the smell. But look at, again, 1122. I think it's a striking statement of faith from one who is, again, deeply hurting. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Her point, Even now I trust you, even though you didn't answer any of my prayers the way that I wanted them to be answered. Again, have you ever been where where Martha is at here? We find our I am statement in the next couple of verses. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this she said to him yes lord i believe that you are the christ the son of god who is coming into the world notice how there's two specific claims here jesus says i am the and i am the it's easy to conflate them and put them as the same thing i think they're actually quite a bit distinct and I want to talk through a little bit of that distinction. He's the resurrection. What's the resurrection indicating? Some sort of a future eschatological raising from the dead. What, what's the life focusing on? I think it's the same thing you see in John chapter 10, verse 10. Abundant life, current earthly living. So we, say we have these two back and forth concepts. One's eternal hope and one's earthly experience. So let's think about it a little bit more then. First off, let's think about it. Okay, I am the resurrection, clearly developed in Second half of verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Future raising from the dead. It's eschatological in focus. Uh, Yet shall he live, even though the believer physically dies. I think back to chapter 6, verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day. Idea of raising him up. I think of Old Testament passages like Daniel chapter 12, verse 2: those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Our hope is future-oriented. The Christian hope is intrinsically future-oriented, but it's not just future-oriented. And I think we see that with this concept of I am the life. Look at 11, verse 26. Seems to be a distinction here. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In this way, Jesus' in, his focus doesn't strictly seem to be on this future eschatological hope, but it seems rather to be very present, very, very earthly, abundant life, enjoying the giver of all good gifts, the very presence of God right now. In this way, 11.26, the believer shall never die. Notice, not shall die but be resurrected. No, shall never die. Quite the bold statement, but again, something that's not unfamiliar with Jesus' words throughout the book of John. 6, verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 8, verse 51, truly, truly, I say to I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. There is something in us as human beings that cannot die. This twofold statement, I am the resurrection and I am the life. It's the hope of all Christians, right? That is our hope, that we might live in union with God through Christ now and forever. I think the point, Jesus' point, Recorded by John, is a rather familiar one. Eternal life starts today, it starts now. It doesn't start someday when I die. It starts perhaps a quiet and unassuming prayer of a child or the intellectually charged discussions of an undergraduate. Maybe later in life in an emotional and startling conversion. It happens in a good variety of ways. And I bet everyone in this room has a different story of how it happened to them. What is eternal life? Well, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, as Christians, we're not naive. We recognize a verse like Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. If you're not, expect, if you're not expecting to die, if you're not expecting that someday you're going to breathe your last, that someday your heart will stop beating and no CPR will resuscitate you, if you don't know that and acknowledge it, then there's something wrong. The hope of the Christian is that, yes, that will happen, but, but what do we do with that then? In a very real way, the Christian will never die. So quite the paradox, isn't it? I am the resurrection. I will die. I am the life. I won't die. It's a beautiful contradiction, almost contradiction, a beautiful paradox. Almost seems to be a contradiction, but I don't believe there's any contradiction really here. There is a spiritual unseen reality, an unseen realm. There's a physical, a material realm. Spiritually, Ephesians 2, we who are dead in our trespasses have been made alive alive. Colossians chapter 3, we have been raised with Christ spiritually. We shall never die. Yet on the other hand, physically, 2 Peter 3, according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Physically, we await a future resurrection. Jesus is our resurrection, and he is our life. He's both. That gives us the hope as Christians to proclaim boldly, to sing with boldness, maybe even audacity, one with himself, I cannot die. My life, was, and my life is hid with Christ on high. What a joy the believer can truly sing that. Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. Perhaps one of the main takeaways from this passage, though, is the comfort that Jesus offers to real grieving people. I think we see that even in 11 verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. For one who suffered a great loss, what comfort must these words bring? It's not, he's here, you can go find him now, you can go call him. No, notice, the teacher is here, he is calling you. Jesus is the one doing the calling. Jesus is doing the one who is, Jesus is the one who is searching. Jesus, the teacher, is calling for you. He's actively seeking to provide comfort, to provide grace in a time of need. Could I say that if you are here this morning with unspoken burdens on your heart, the teacher is here and is calling for you. What a great hope that we have from a passage like this. The God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The God who is the savior of all people especially of those who believe he is there calling you. Jesus is calling. How is he calling, you ask? Well, let's think about that. For one, he spiritually sustains, often through providential means. I am sure many of you in this room can attest to times of darkness in your life, heartbreak, perhaps, various kinds, along with God's provision and his unique comfort Things as simple as when you desperately need encouragement and a friend unexpectedly shows up at your door. Things as common as getting a phone call when you need the phone call, a text message when you need the text message, and an email even when you need the email to know that you are heard and that you are loved. And in the midst of that, how good is it to know that every good gift is designed to point you to the ultimate giver of all good things? God, our heavenly Father. These are our good shepherd's gifts to his children, providentially provided by his sovereign hand, all meant to point us back to the one who, who knew you, who called you, who chose you before the creation of the world. It all points to Christ. Now, what is Mary's response here? 11 verse 29, And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. May this be us too. When we hear our good shepherd calling, may we be like Mary and quickly go. And even, we're going to see in 11 verse 32, when she sees him, she sees him, she falls at his feet. Look at verse 30 and following. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house Consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice that she says word for word what her sister just spoke. Kind of interesting there. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It doesn't seem that this is said out of anger or contempt. Very much more sorrow, grief, pain. Well, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 33 and following. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. It's interesting to think about that Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do. Remember chapter 11. If you go back up just a few verses, 11 verse 11. Remember his plan. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He has died. Well, what does Jesus go to do? But I go to awaken him. Jesus, God of very God, supernaturally doesn't just know what he's about to do, but he's actually planned out what he's about to do. He's planned it out, yet he still... What does he do here? Well, he weeps. He knows that in just a matter of minutes, the impossible is going to happen, that the decaying and the rotting body will cease its decay. Not only that, but it will be restored. He knows that the odor will dissipate. The heart that hasn't beat for four days, somewhere around four days, and somewhere around 96 hours, I calculated it, that's about 6,000 minutes. It will start beating as blood starts flowing through the brain, throwing through the body, uh, through the veins. The brain that has had no brain waves will restart. The lungs will again fill with oxygen. The cold, stiffened body that has been placed in the tomb will come stumbling out all on its own. The dead will rise. Jesus knows all of this, but then what does he do? He weeps. There's no making light of death here. There's no trite words on Jesus' lips. There's only tears on his face. I want you to notice the words in 11 verse 33. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. What's the point here? I like how one commentator puts it. He says, uh, paraphrases it. He was outraged in spirit and troubled. I think this idea of outrage is probably closer to the intent of the passage. The word there for outrage or, or being deeply moved, it's used elsewhere in first century liter- literature of the snorting of horses when they detect a threat or an alarm. I don't know horses too well, but I do, I do know our dog pretty well. And when our dog sees someone walk by a little bit too close to the house, another dog, she lets out a low growl, perhaps a bark. You could say she's outraged something's not as it ought to be. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. There is something wrong. It's not merely that Jesus was emotionally moved to tears or deeply touched by his empathy for Mary and Martha and the others, although certainly that's there too. It's more than that. It's not that he's caught off guard by Lazarus' death and therefore can't, can't help but cry. I think it goes beyond that. Jesus is outraged. He's angry with the sin-cursed world and its subsequent suffering of sin and sickness and death. May this, a passage like this, may it serve as an example that it's not wrong to be angry with that which is wrong. It's not wrong to be upset with the effects of sin, frustrated with the effects of the fall, outraged by human suffering and abuse. I think of... Lament Psalms. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Psalm 6. My soul is greatly troubled. How long, O Lord, how long. Friends, the fact that Jesus, the resurrection and the life himself, weeps, is outraged by sin over his loved one's grief. As may that serve as an encouragement. He hears, he knows. He loves. In this section, though, in the following verses, uh, notice how Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life is validated. It's not just a claim that he he makes, but it's a claim that he, he makes and then subsequently proves, he provides evidence for. 11, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. They're confused, Why Martha's confused here. Until the end of time, there is no undoing death. Perhaps if Jesus was there just a few days prior, he could have fixed everything. But not at this point. Martha's, at this point, she's fearing the stench of decomposition. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be sickening. It's going to be sad. It's kind of, in our modern terms, saying, exhume the body. Dig up the bones. Take him out of the casket. It's not something you would say. It's it's rather radical what Jesus is calling for right here. But then what happens? Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I always wonder how many minutes passed before Lazarus actually came out. What were they doing as they stood there waiting silently for something to happen? Verse 44. The man who had died came out. Dead man walking. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Don't you love Jesus' words right there? Unbind him and let him go. Do you ever wonder what this was all like for Lazarus? Last he remembers, he's terribly ill. Then he wakes up covered with strips of linen, someone calling his name feeling all better but probably terribly confused, probably feeling like he's had the best nap of his life. (laughs) The text doesn't specify if his soul ascended to heaven for these days or or what exactly happened. It's interesting that, though, because you find other passages like 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about being caught up into paradise or, or John himself in the book of Revelation. He records the vision of a new heaven and a new earth at the end of days. Why isn't Lazarus' experience recorded here? Well, it's as if John is so laser-focused in chapter 11 on Jesus, on who Jesus is, that that's almost peripheral to his central thought. He omits Lazarus's lived experience. What I want you to notice, though, is the distinct comparison that, that is made here, and I think John, in his gospel, does, does an incredible job a literary master at comparing Lazarus's resurrection from just a few chapters later, Jesus's resurrection. You have these two, and you can almost overlay them side by side. And when you do, there's striking differences. It's as if Jesus's resurrection is is of a categorically different type, a completely different kind. If you want, I'd suggest to put one, one thumb in chapter 11, and then one thumb in chapter 19 to 20. I just want to draw your attention to a few verses that I think make this point clear. John chapter 11, verse 38. First off, notice Lazarus, where is he placed? He's placed in a tomb. With Jesus, where is he placed? 19, verse 41. He's also placed in a tomb. Okay, so we've got a similarity there. They've both died, both been placed in tombs. Yet Think of some of the contrasts. With Lazarus, people must, 11 verse 39, people must take away the stone. With Jesus, 20 verse 1, the stone had already been taken away. Lazarus, he comes out stumbling, 11 verse 44, says his hands and his feet bound with linen strips. Jesus is already outside the tomb, 20, verse 15, they suppose him to be the gardener. 20, verse 5, the linen cloths are lying there. Lazarus, notice in 11, verse 44, his face is wrapped in a cloth. Jesus' face cloth, 20, verse 7, which had been on his head, was folded up in a place by itself. See, when Lazarus was called to a resurrection of mortal life, it was just that. It's, it's regular, frail life that's temporary. Jesus rose with what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15 a spiritual body. It's as if Jesus' resurrection is, again, of a categorically different kind than Lazarus's. And what are we to make of that? Well, do you ever stop to consider how many resurrections there are in the Bible? There's more than a little, though there's less than a lot. 1 Kings 17, the widow's son. 2 Kings 4, the Shunammite's son. 2 Kings 13, probably my favorite, most striking and surprising. Uh, The man thrown into Elisha's tomb hits his bones. Mark 5, Jairus' daughter. Luke 7, the young man in the town of Nine. Matthew 27, unknown believers at the crucifixion. Acts 9, Tabitha, also known as Dorcas. Acts 20, Eutychus, who fell asleep and fell out a third Story window while Paul preached too long. Yet, in every one of these cases, and I do notice that we're on a third story and uh, (laughs) there are windows there, but thankfully no one's leaning against them. In every one of these cases, the individual who experienced a mortal resurrection dies again, right? Eventually dies, not so with Jesus. See, it's not that we worship Jesus merely because we have historical accounts of him rising from the dead. That is one reason we do, certainly. But it's not just that. We worship Jesus as God because he is life, unending life himself, life above all life, the one from whom all other life derives its very being and its very essence. I think of the comparison like this with John chapter 6. If you remember John 6, Jesus, he proclaims to be the bread of life and that way he physically provides Bread, right? The physical. There's physical bread. He, he also is somehow. He is bread, substance beyond substance of of bread, provision beyond provision. Well, in John 11, Jesus, the resurrection of the resurrection and the life both provides resurrection, provides life. Yet somehow Himself is resurrection. Not just that He will rise from the dead, but He is resurrection, and He is life. Not just that he provides it, as important as that is, but that he's the very embodiment of life itself. Okay, so let's try to just wrap this all up in a moment or so. Students, as you walk day by day, as you live during this semester, as you all know, unexpected things are going to happen, and they keep happening when you're faculty and when you're staff, too. It doesn't change. That's life. My hope and my prayer from this passage is the opposite of 11, verse 37. What do some of the Jews say there? When Jesus doesn't answer Mary and Martha's request, they say, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? My hope and prayer is that that's not us. My hope and prayer is that we're much more like Martha, 11, verse 22. Even when things have not gone the way at all that she wants, Lord, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You never know what is in store. I think that's exactly the case that we see with this story, with this account. She surely did not know that her brother was going to be risen from the grave. You never know what God is in store. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we're grateful for the many blessings that you do give. We're grateful for your love and mercy that you are the resurrection and the life.